0: So I would really encourage a pharmacist to have those proactive conversations with anybody that's on a high-risk medication and ideally anybody that they're concerned about. Or maybe even checking it, just having it open for every patient because it is possible that you might be dispensing something that does have a risk if they taking lots of other high-risk medications. But just to actually start that conversation saying we now have this new system. It allows me and it's important for me to look at this in terms of your medications. And I want to flag that if I have any concerns, I will be discussing those with you. It doesn't mean that what you're saying is I'm not going to just end, though it may. Hi, I'm Dr. Hester Wilson. I'm a general practitioner and addiction medicine specialist working in Newtown and Surrey Hills in Sydney. And you're listening to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast.
1: Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Focusing on pharmacy management and ownership. The PBCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN podcast supporting your journey every step of the way. When it comes to pain, there is often more to the story than meets the eye. Our guest today says it's important to take a compassionate stance and apply that same compassion in conversations with patients about their medications. I'm speaking today with Dr. Hester Wilson about painful conversations, those tricky topics around pain medications. Hester is a GP in Sydney, an addiction medicine specialist and chair of the Special Interest Group in Addiction with the RACGP. Hester has a wealth of knowledge and experience working collaboratively with colleagues, including local pharmacists, to help her patients manage their pain effectively. She has some great ideas and insights into how to start the right conversations with patients and with their doctors as well. Here's Hester. Dr. Wilson, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. It'd be great to start off with a little bit of an introduction. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background in addiction medicine and really how you came to specialise in the area.
0: I trained as a GP uh, and I've been working in the primary care setting for about 30 years now. Uh, Even very early in my medical career, I became aware of uh, a group of people who really struggled with substances, particularly alcohol, uh, and, and, and just saw that That quite often the level of care that they were provided uh, was was, was pretty poor. Um, As I've progressed through my medical career, um, I've worked in low threshold services, both in Australia and in the UK, and many people that are are homeless, um, have significant mental health issues, end up uh, with addiction issues as well. And so it's, it's a really common uh, issue that we see in the mainstream primary care setting and general practice setting, but also um, in, in hospital and, uh, you know, kind of low threshold services that are supporting people with homelessness. Um, I, I guess for me, it's really about what I came to recognise was that addiction is a chronic relapsing medical condition and requires a health approach. And it comes with a lot of stigma, a lot of kind of cultural and moral judgments that get in the way of people being able to seek help and manage their condition. And and the idea is that people should just say no, they should just stop and get on with their lives. And and that's for some people, that's possible. You know, they have a bit of a blip in their lives. You know, we've just got to look at COVID, um, where we found people were working from home and maybe drinking a little bit earlier in the day. And some, pe- some people got into problems because of that. But for many people, it becomes a chronic condition with real risk and real harm. And we need as health professionals to support those people through the long term To actually improve their health, to actually improve their outcomes. And there are good treatments that can help us do that.
1: So, improving health and improving outcomes is definitely what community pharmacists are focusing on. So, that provides a great rundown. It sets the scene well for our listeners. So, today I'd really like to focus in on the intersection between prescribers and pharmacists because there is a really important relationship there, particularly when it comes to pain management. Now, Listeners may remember in episode 102 that we spoke to Julia Jones, the CEO at Pain Australia. And Julia spoke about the very important role that pharmacists have in supporting patients in their communities. As someone who is working closely with those living with chronic pain and taking medications that can be addictive, what do you see as the role pharmacists play in your patients' journeys?
0: The role pharmacists plays is absolutely
1: integral.
0: I love working with the pharmacists that I work with. They are fantastic. They are such an important part of the treatment team. One really important thing for me, and and the pharmacists that work with me will all be nodding and saying, Yes, that's right, uh, is that I I love it when they call me. I love to have those conversations. I want to work with them as uh, parts of the treatment team to assist the patients that we're seeing. And I love it when pharmacists ring me and go, Hester I think you might have made a mistake on this script and I go oh my goodness of course I did what did I do I will fix that uh you know and and from my point of view they're they're important to keep me safe in terms of ensuring that I'm doing everything right by the prescribing but even more importantly they will see my patients at times and in a place that I don't see them. So they will be able to give additional information uh, around how a patient is going, you know, and a pharmacist ringing me up and going, look, I saw Joe Bloggs. He's really not doing well today. Um, I've asked him to come back and see you. That is gold. That is gold. Uh, Quite often pharmacists will see our patients more often than we do. And I really can't overestimate how important that therapeutic alliance that pharmacists can have with our shared patients because they see them in that um, pharmacy setting and see them frequently and chat to them about their lives. And they see them with their kids and they come in and buy other things. It's, it's, it's a really lovely, gentle relationship. Um, and, And it can be a relationship where where um, our shared patients will actually talk about some stuff that perhaps they don't within the the medical consultation, which is a little bit more formal, maybe a little bit more pressured and people forget to ask all the questions and, and maybe, in fact, more comfortable asking pharmacists some of the questions that they maybe think, maybe I shouldn't ask Hester that or Hester's really busy or you know, all those things. And so I, 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 I love working with pharmacists and it's a fantastic relationship that, that we can have as professionals supporting our shared patients once again, to ensure that we can help them out the best we can.
1: I love that attitude, Hester, the collaborative relationship, because it's obviously important to optimal patient outcomes. Now, over the last few years, there have been some significant changes to how opioid medications, which are often prescribed to manage pain, uh, how they are dispensed in a pharmacy. Can you outline and and summarise what those changes have been and ultimately what the implications have been for patients?
0: So the first changes that happened was the upscheduling of codeine in 2018. Uh, There were some concerns at the time that the uh, pharmacy-only um, codeine, which was no longer available, uh, would mean that people uh, would not be able to manage their pain or that we'd have many, many people turning up in general practice requesting codeine as a Schedule 4, so they're needed on a prescription. What we found with that was that uh, most people very, very easily found other ways to manage their acute non-severe pain. And so that was the pain that they would be going to the pharmacy for. And so they were able to go to the pharmacy and they'd say, oh, well, I'm going to get my, my codeine. And the pharmacist would say, actually, no, you can't get that without script now. But there's these other pain options, uh, you know, that are available, paracetamol, ibuprofen, the combinations. And so people very easily were able to find other options that actually assisted them. Uh, and look, And the reality is for the vast majority of people who were taking those codeine combinations, it's really likely that codeine actually wasn't a really important part of the pain relief and most people were able to to obtain the pain relief they were looking for without it. There were a group of people that moved to the Schedule 4 codeine-based products Uh, and the real advantage of that was it actually gave us as GPs a chance to sit down with those people and work out, is codeine the best option for you? Is it actually serving you? Because the reason that codeine was scheduled was there were a group of people who became dependent on codeine and that drove high dose use, uh, which, which could lead to um, gastrointestinal issues, uh, liver issues and kidney issues as a result of the other additives for the codeine. And the codeine, because they become addicted, drove that continued use and the higher dose use. So what we saw was with those changes, it gave us that opportunity to, to engage with people, both as GPs and as pharmacists, to say, look, this is now on script. Please go back and see your GP. If 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 I can't support you with the other over-the-counter options, go back and see your GP and, and get a check-up and see what is actually the best treatment for that. So that was codeine. Then in 2020, there were a number of changes that were made to the prescriptions um, for PBS. first thing is smaller pack size. Smaller pack size for the immediate release opioids. makes so much sense. The common one, the oxycodone, a five milligram uh, option, came in packs of 20. More often than not, people that were taking that for acute pain didn't actually use it you know, they'd use five or six or whatever. And then the rest of it would end up in their in their cabinet at home. Uh, and and we do know that there is an issue with people sharing medications. Oh, I've got some of this stuff. I've got some pain relief some time ago. Why don't you try it? And we know there's a real risk for people taking medicines that, that are not their own. So the smaller pack size was one of the really important shifts. And I think it's really good because there was lots of wastage. The other one was moving um, uh, all of the opiate-containing products to S4. So there were no longer any that were Schedule 2 or Schedule 3 available over the pharmacy, that they were all S4. And that really was once again looking at those the coding linkedists, those um, cough mixtures, that we do see and still occasionally do see where people developed a dependency on those. The other really important changes were really looking at the difference between immediate release and long release. And flagging that the immediate release is for short-term acute pain and the prolonged release, sustained release, is more for chronic pain. The other issue is the different opioids and really flagging that you've got to look at the potency of opioids. So the highly potent ones, your your methadone, your fentanyl, your hydromorphone, those should not be used in someone who, who is opioid naive and really there's a bit of a push around us in the primary care setting, really probably not the medications that we should be using, really would be good for specialist review for those. Uh, the other two changes uh, was that opioids should only be prescribed in extenuating circumstances, uh, where, it is going to be, where it is clearly in the benefit of the patient and, and that the benefit overweighs the risk. And on top of that, the 12-month review. Now, the 12-month review has been longstanding, but it was once again reiterated in these changes. And that has been a real benefit, because what it allows us to do as GPs is to say to a patient, "Look, you've been on this treatment for 12 months. I just really want my colleague uh, to have a have a look, go through everything with you, and just make sure that we we've got the we're doing this the best we possibly can. That there aren't other options that we need to be to be adding." Um, And so all those changes were made because of the risks from opioids. We know that it's a highly effective pain relief uh, medication, but it has real risks. And it has real risks, particularly for people that um, are experiencing chronic pain. So it's really getting that balance right between um, the benefit from opioids and the risks that particularly they can cause for people in terms of chronic pain. And pharmacists have a real role in terms of those changes, because those changes, once again, have affected the conversations that pharmacists have. Uh, And I really encourage pharmacists to, to just get their head around those changes and why they've happened and to be able to then say to patients, actually, this is a really good thing, because this is ensuring that we're keeping people safe, and that we are able to we're, we're thinking and able to offer people the best options that will you know, and help them to have the best possible lives they can. The other thing that um, sometimes we don't think of but is actually really important is naloxone. So we've got um, two forms, an injectable form and a nasal form of naloxone, Uh, and they are now available um, over-the-counter and as S4. Uh, and, And they are an important thing to be thinking of, both for us as prescribers and for pharmacists, to be thinking about the role that naloxone can have in someone who is prescribed opioids, where we may be concerned about their risk of overdose, and there's lots of reasons why that may be a risk. Um, but just flagging there, because I've got the chance to say it, just think about the role of naloxone as an antidote uh, to opioids. Uh, you know, naloxone is the, uh, the the equivalent of your EpiPen um, for anaphylaxis. Naloxone is is your your EpiPen of um, op- over your opioid overdose. The other thing that has changed uh, and is absolutely fantastic is real-time prescription monitoring that has come in place all around Australia. Important to check in with your state if you're not registered to, to register as, as a pharmacist. system. also encouraging all my colleagues to register because what that gives us is really excellent information around what is happening with our patients uh, and their prescriptions. Um, Uh, for high-risk medicines, so benzodiazepines, opioids, and depending on the state, some of the higher-risk antipsychotics uh, and gabapentinoids as well.
1: Well, Hester, that real-time monitoring has really placed the pharmacist front and centre in having important, and let's be honest, sometimes really difficult conversations with their patients. I can imagine that having access to a patient's record of where and when medications have been dispensed, that puts more burden on a pharmacist to, to actually stop and have a conversation with patients if they think there's a bit of a concern around the amount or, or frequency that a medication has been dispensed. How important is it from your perspective as somebody who is a prescriber for pharmacists to, to have those conversations?
0: I think it's incredibly important. And once again, pharmacists as part of that treating team have a relationship quite often with the person that they're seeing. I do acknowledge that these conversations are difficult. They can be difficult. However, what I know sometimes happens is that pharmacists have already started conversations with patients even before real-time prescription monitoring was, was available and been saying, look, I'm a little concerned about your dose. Can you go back to your GP? Um, but also that real-time prescription monitoring gives the pharmacist and us as GPs a, a, a chance to restart those conversations. Uh, and, you know, so what I'm doing in my setting is saying, look, you know, we've got there's this new program uh, in, and in my state, it's SafeScript, New South Wales. This allows me to look at the medications that you are being prescribed and being dispensed. There is a reason for this because these medicines can be high risk. And I really want to ensure that you're not coming to harm. So I would really encourage a pharmacist to have those proactive conversations with anybody that's on a high risk medication and you know, ideally anybody that, that they're concerned about Um, or maybe even checking it, just having it open for every patient, Um, because it is possible that you might be dispensing something that that does have a risk if they're taking lots of other uh, high-risk medications. Uh, But but just to actually start that conversation saying, we now have this new system, it allows me and it's important for me to look at this uh, in terms of your medications. And I want to flag that if I have any concerns, I will be discussing those with you. It doesn't mean... That what you're saying is, I'm not going to dispense, though it may. If, if, if you are super concerned as a pharmacist that there's, there's prescribing here that is really unsafe, you really are in a position where you may have to say, I'm really sorry, I'm really concerned about this level of prescribing. I'd really like to give your doctor a call and just have a chat to them. Um, you know, it, it's your script. Please take it back. I really just want to flag that what I'm looking at here is really high levels of this and really high levels of you know the the valium and the alprazolam and the oxycodone are you aware that these can be unsafe taken together are you aware that these can cause overdose and and, and in these doses can hurt people i really don't want to hurt you uh and it may be that the person goes well you know I'm going elsewhere but what you've done is you have had a, a respectful conversation that is around risk and harm and concern. Uh, and and look, you know, there are some people that are on these medications that don't realize what they are, and they're quite horrified when they realize that they're they are high-risk medications. Other people immediately start to feel a bit shameful and a bit stigmatized. Uh and, and you know, so you you're saying I'm a drug user actually, no, I'm saying that you are a person that has really significant health issues. You're on some medicines, like all medicines, they have risk. And I am concerned for your wellbeing and your safety. And I want to help you to manage that.
1: You mentioned about talking to patients about some medications there. Some pharmacists may have tried to for want of a better word, confront or or start those conversations with patients who they believe to be accessing what might be unsafe or incorrect amounts of, of a medication, they are really just trying to do their job. But in reality, some have faced angry reactions. You gave an example of one, do you think I'm a drug user? No, no, just a person, et cetera, et cetera. Or maybe they found themselves in starting those conversations having done more harm than good, which is clearly not the intent. Where and how can a good relationship with the prescribers play a part in good patient outcomes there?
0: The relationship with the prescriber is is really important. You know, and I said before, look, I love it when the pharmacists call me. It's really important. But I also am aware that some of my pharmacy colleagues have had really difficult conversations with prescribers. Uh, you know, and and they ring up and they can't get through to the prescriber or the prescriber is rude back to them or says, don't worry about it. The bottom line for a pharmacist is that you need to use your clinical judgment and, you know, you have done the right thing by raising it with with the prescriber. Even if the prescriber doesn't take it on, all you can do as a pharmacist is, is say, look, I am really concerned with with what I'm seeing here, um, you know how do you want me to respond to this? One of the things you can do as a pharmacist is say, look, we could do stage supply, we could do supervised dosing. Um, you know, perhaps this this person actually needs to see an addiction specialist or a pain specialist. I'm really concerned. Um, but if the if the prescriber goes, well I'm I'm don't you worry about it, um, it's all fine. All the pharmacist can do is with their clinical judgment say, well look I I've, I've raised my concerns. Uh, And then as an individual, as a a, a person that is um, dispensing these, you need to make a decision as to whether you feel it's safe for you to dispense. And you are totally within your rights to say, actually, I'm not happy to dispense this. More often than not, what will happen is if a pharmacist rings the prescriber, the prescriber can explain, look, there is a really good reasons why this person is having this. I am aware of this risk. This is what we're working on. Love to have you involved in supporting this person. Are you happy to dispense? Uh, and that's the kind of you know, conversation that we want to have. But I absolutely acknowledge that sometimes um, pharmacists have gotten pretty short shift from prescribers. Document it, document what you've done, do what you know is the correct thing. As as a health um, professional, that's all you can do.
1: The comment back, don't worry about it, or maybe the patient dismisses a pharmacist's concern and just shuts down the conversation It can happen, as you mentioned. Now, doctor shopping is a term many of our listeners will be familiar with and perhaps have heard of or experienced in the pharmacy context. What does that term actually mean? And in your experience, is it a real phenomenon or or something that just really does contribute to further stigmatising people who, let's be clear, are, are already struggling?
0: Doctor shopping is a really common term that is bandied about. I think we do need to be careful. I do think there are a very small proportion of people who are actually doctor shopping. This is a small group of people who go from doctor to doctor to doctor with a made-up story to get medicines that they sell. It's a business. The vast majority of people that we see who go from doctor to doctor and tell a story are not doing that. Well, they might sell a little bit of their medication, but that's because they're living in poverty. What is going on for them is serious, complex, poorly treated medical conditions and the possibility of a dependency on their opioids or their benzodiazepines that leads to them undertaking this behaviour. So I'm really keen for us to move away from this. It's really is a pejorative term, doctor shopper. And what tends to happen with some who's a doctor shopper is, oh, you're a doctor shopper, go away. My, my, my kind of call out to all of us is when you're seeing someone, and we do see them now on real-time prescription monitoring who's getting scripts from multiple prescribers and going to multiple pharmacies, is to be going, is this risky? Is this person at risk of coming to harm? Do they have a dependency and addiction for which they need help. Not less help, not a go away, but a, I am really concerned about what's happening for you. You need more support. This looks to me like you might have developed a dependency or an addiction on this medicine, and this can be really harmful. It means you take bigger doses for a longer period of time and you can come to harm from this. This needs treatment. This is a medical condition. This is important. Please go and get help go back to your doctor go to the local drug and alcohol team seek help for this and the pharmacist is it's also absolutely okay to say I am so concerned for your safety that I cannot dispense this for you. I am so sorry. I want to help you, but I can't do something that's unsafe. I really encourage you to get more help. I'm really happy to work with you to get this back on track once you've got a plan that's going to be safer, that's helping you to manage this. But with what I'm seeing now, I'm really concerned for your safety and I can't dispense.
1: Hester, what does the term treatment team mean to you as a GP and what role does it play for patients in terms of optimal health outcomes?
0: So for many people that have chronic pain, anxiety disorders, uh, you know complex health issues, it's really important that they have a treatment team. because I as a GP can't do it all. You as a pharmacist can't do it all. We need to be a team and it's GPs, it's pharmacists, it's the physios, it's the pain specialists, it's the, it's the diabetic nurse if you've got diabetes. It's, it's having all those people around you as the patient, as the consumer who is experiencing these to ensure that you get the best possible care. So the teamwork is incredibly important uh, and, and working in teams ensures that we're all on the same page. We know what everybody's doing. It makes it safer and the outcomes are going to be better.
1: So for pharmacists looking to network with maybe other pharmacists and obviously prescribers for support and to build up this idea of a treatment team, what advice can you give to them?
0: It's looking for those ways to work collaboratively with your colleagues. Certainly the primary health networks, there's 51 of them all around Australia and they offer a place for prescribers and for pharmacists to actually uh, work together, um, to do education together, there's going to be the possibility there'll be more opportunities put in place for pharmacists and GPs to work together in these small group learning um, settings. Certainly this is becoming more common uh, for uh, groups of pharmacists and doctors that are prescribing opioid agonist treatment or medication-assisted treatment of opioid dependence. Um, but I, but you know really when I'm thinking about this, the way I think to move forward with it is uh, through the PHNs, and and potentially through the Guild and the PSA working in with RECGP and ACRM to really look at how we can support those those small group learnings that support these groups moving together. Um, the for me as a GP. Pharmacists are part of my treatment team, and uh, case conferencing is something that I can do. Um, that I'm actually paid for through Medicare. I know that's not the case for pharmacists, uh, but but certainly, you know, being a, a, a pharmacist that is, you know, willing to engage with GPs and happy to support that. Yeah, being part of that treatment team, um, you know, is, is is really beneficial, and and I would suggest having a chat to your local PHN or through the guild or PSA to look at how can you set up those networks. Those networks can be local, and with the group of people that you're providing care for, or it can be a, a more universal online setting where it's general advice and support as as a a, a group of health professionals um, that can work towards this together.
1: Hester, great chat, great insights, great advice. Let's start to wrap this up a little bit. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners, maybe for them to take away or any more advice uh, to share on this front for for all those pharmacists who see these patients every day?
0: Yeah, look, pharmacists, you're in a great position uh, to have conversations and, and I know they can be difficult. Most times they're not. Uh, but they can be difficult and I really encourage you to have them early, set up that therapeutic alliance early, set yourself up you know, so that the patient knows that you're there for them, that you're there to help, that you can see their medications, that you want to assist them. Um, and and have those deeper conversations when you can. If you do have a private space where you can have those conversations, if your pharmacy is set up that way, that's brilliant. And I would encourage you as pharmacists um, to to look at whether you can set up your pharmacy that way. And a final note from me, I I can't finish this up without saying it, is to remember what we've been talking about today is the use of prescribed opioids and the risk that they can have. One of the risks is addiction or dependence, and we have highly evidence-based treatments in the form of opioid agonist treatment, otherwise known as medication-assisted treatment of opioid dependence. I'm talking about buprenorphine, methadone. The buprenorphine comes as a, as a monosublingual, um, a sublingual with naloxone, but also the injectables, buvidal and the long-acting um, buprenorphine. If you're not doing that work in your pharmacy, really have a think about whether you can take some of that on, whether you want to uh, think about maybe doing the injections for the long-acting buprenorphine. It is such an effective treatment. It's not for everybody that gets into problems with prescribed opioids. We probably have 100,000 people who are dependent on opioids and less than half of them are in treatment one of the re- big reasons for not being in treatment is because they don't have access and one of the reasons for that is that there's no pharmacy for them to um, to collect their medicines from or to be dosed at or to get their injections so I really encourage you as pharmacists to think about maybe making that part of your practice uh, and encourage your um, prescriber colleagues that you know well um, that you're here you're here to support and if they want to take on some of the prescribing you'd love to support them to do that it's a highly evidence-based treatment it really works it was res- it it, it results in really good health outcomes for people and I'd really love to see access um, available to everyone that needs it.
1: Outstanding. Dr Hester Wilson, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights around painful conversations. It's been very much appreciated. Thank you. Well, that was a fantastic conversation with Dr Hester Wilson on some of the challenges in dealing with pain medication treatment, something many of you will be dealing with in your pharmacy. Hester is such a fantastic speaker, and I wanted to let you know about an upcoming opportunity to hear her speak more about pain. Hester will be hosting a session on harm minimization at the Pharmacy Connect conference in Sydney in September, and there are many more great sessions planned at the conference as well. For more on the conference and to see the program and even to register, simply head to pharmacy-connect.com.au or follow the link in the show notes at guild.org.au. That's all for today. Thanks for joining me. I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode 105 of the PBCN podcast. The PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support
0: or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.